for February 5th, 2018. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 501. Our ad is for non-chumps. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together, when we're uh, talking about the things that interest us, and when we're sharing those interests with our friends and with the community of overthinkers all over the world. This week, the the smash hit sci-fi show that has taken Netflix by storm, Altered Carbon. Might Altered be Carbon. <laughs> might be the best thing they've they've made in a while. I don't know what else we would talk about this week. So it's Altered Carbon all the way. I'm with my good friends, Altered Carbon Pete. Altered Carbon. <laughs> and Altered Carbon Mark. Altered me. <laughs> and uh, I'm Matt Rather. And we're talking about uh, we're talking about altered carbon. We're talking about its themes, its themes of exaltation and degradation. We're talking about how it reflects a uh, the overturning of powerful dynasties by uh, by upstarts. And uh, and we're talking about how advertisements are um, just sort of uh, woven into every single square inch of altered carbon. Altered right? carbon. Wait, dude, we're in the Super Bowl Overthinking It podcast. Wait, what? What? Mm-hmm. Who's this? This is the Super Bowl Overthinking It podcast? Wait, wait, this isn't the Altered Carbon podcast. This is, in fact, a Super Bowl advertisement podcast and has been the entire time. <laughs> hey, when you do a whole bunch of self-referential jokes, you can only be one thing, the Super Bowl advertising podcast on the Overthinking It podcast. Now, I'm glad we're actually doing this this week after the 500th episode of the Overthinking It podcast because we sort of celebrate that milestone and look at the tradition of the podcast. And then beyond that, like this is a longstanding tradition uh, of the podcast where where you two gentlemen and I talk through uh, what just happened on the gridiron. No, what happened in between the segments on the gridiron in the Super Bowl commercials. And there's a tradition in these podcasts every year, our great narrativizer of uh of super bowl halftime uh, shows and ads our great advertiser our narrativizer of the advertising of the super bowl uh peter fenzel um tells us what it all meant so pete did you identify a master narrative uh what's as as the commentators say before the show what's top of mind to you going into this podcast <laughs> So obviously the thing that was top of mind for a lot of people was the change that the NFL went through this year, the tumult the NFL went through this year with the national anthem protests, which, of course, surfaced not at all during the broadcast, but dominated, I think, the subconscious of everybody involved, it seems. And as such, the advertisements responded to this, but not perhaps in the way that you might have thought, I think, because there was some indication that some brands wanted to play all sides and get happy with everybody say oh yeah we we like all sorts of people and everybody should get along and be happy and we should put this whole disagreement behind us without having done anything substantial to actually fix the problem that it describes great awesome and there were a couple of commercials like that toyota uh but 
I don't think that's what really happened. And I don't think that's the change that we really saw this year. And I think the change we really saw this year is as such. In the past, the Super Bowl has been something that everybody watches. And when you buy a Super Bowl advertisement, everybody is going to watch you for 30 seconds. And your challenge is, what am I going to say with the 30 seconds that I have, which I've purchased for millions of dollars from the Super Bowl? And here's what's changed. The people are watching football, but the people are not watching you unless you make them. There's this new sub game of make the people watch you. And I think that this is keyed into the protests in certain ways because you have a situation where something is very deliberately not being looked at and people through performance demand that it be looked at. I'm I'm kneeling during the national anthem. I've created this big performative moment. Whether you like it or you hate it, you're looking at me and this is going to be something that you pay attention to. And obviously, a lot of people paid attention to it for a variety of reasons. So for me, the narrative that swept across almost all of the Super Bowl ads was you're looking at the screen. I want you to look at me. I want you to look at my brand. I, I want to I don't I have not earned that attention just by virtue of buying a Super Bowl ad. And I am going to get your attention because I'm entitled to it, and I'm going to make the performative case for why I'm entitled to your attention by bragging about myself, whether it's because I'm good or awesome, for good or for awesome, as Strong Bad would say, for good or for awesome, uh, either because I'm good or because I'm awesome or for some other thing that I've done, but mostly by, by braggadocio, by, by being somebody who is, is accustomed to getting lots of attention, you're going to get the attention for your brand. And this cuts across everything from, you know, Tyrion Lannister and Morgan Freeman, not Tyrion Lannister, but Tyrion Lannister and Morgan Freeman lip syncing, Keanu Reeves riding a motorcycle, uh, the, even, even Bill Hader being like, shut up, Kevin. Wow, these Pringles. Oh, man, no attention for you. Attention for me. I get the attention. And the the actual messages, the, the messages per se that this occasion brought forward are interesting, but I can't seem to really think or talk about them without acknowledging even the TD Ameritrade commercial with Lionel Richie. They're begging Lionel Richie to make a pun about his song all night long and the availability to, to trade on their platform at night. And they're saying, like, right, right. You know, that's the thing that you should say because everybody's going to pay attention to it. And that's the important thing is you need to say the thing that everybody's going to pay attention to. And so it's interesting to think about this as a unifying tactic, a unifying piece of cultural discourse, a sort of technology of power that unites so many people with so many different perspectives. It's something that the president does. It's something that the Black Lives Matter protesters do. It's something that children do on social media. It's something adults do on social media. It's something that large media companies do and brands. There's this battle now to get the attention through performance, which seems obvious, but has but you ain't seen nothing yet is kind of the message here. You think we've tried to get your attention before with like the Doritos girl doing splits and stuff. You ain't seen nothing yet. We're going to figure out how to really get your attention. Sure. And, like you yeah. think that you think The Rock is awesome. We're going to do Die Hard with The <laughs> Rock. And he has a prosthetic leg and he jumps off a crane into the abyss. 
this. Yes. Like there is a there is a strong Dianu component here. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he, and there are, sometimes it goes really presentationalist, and sometimes it even goes kind of representationalist with that Jeep commercial, which we can talk about, which is also making this claim to authenticity. It ties into so many of the different trends that you hear people talk about with regards to the changing of generations. People want authenticity. They want you to they want to feel like you're being you're telling them the truth. And it's like, OK, we're, we're going to be as authentic as we possibly can. Everyone get in this room and start storyboarding. We're going to be hella authentic. Right. So, uh, which is outdated. But anyway, Pete, uh, let me put it a slightly different way and see if you agree with this. Um, perhaps a slightly simpler way. Um, is it as simple just to say that in an increasingly crowded media landscape, with screens, more screens, uh, and a lot of internet stuff going on, and with an increasingly sophisticated audience, that advertisers are forced to just try harder? Is that basically what's going on, or is there a subtle difference? No, there's a a difference, although what you're bringing up is definitely a factor. I think the thing that I would add is that none of these ads really were acting as if the occasion of the Super Bowl was giving them any sort of authority. I don't think. Unpack that. Oh, so like oh, consider that's a, that's a, yeah. yeah, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, like so consider uh, e- even the presence of the military throughout felt like it had to be displayed by force because it, the idea of being associated with the Super Bowl was not enough to to really get the message across. But consider Keanu Reeves making a website, right? So there's a commercial about. <laughs> There's a commercial about Keanu Reeves making a website, uh, and Keanu Reeves is riding on top of a motor, balancing on top of a CGI motorcycle, traveling at 90 miles an hour, reciting a power, uh, power of positive thinking sort of audio book to himself, which is playing off of his, I guess, the radio in his helmet or maybe the radio but on his a, motorcycle. It's it's more than that. He's talking about sort of personal uniqueness and sort of uh, uh, personal entitlement, but but which is a theme that I want to bring up but but go on with your story but if you can think about past super bowls even during the dot-com boom when the super bowl ads were deliberately frivolous there was a sense that the frivolity existed in opposition to the cost and seriousness if you will of the occasion oh my god how many different web dot-coms you know web companies were saying oh my god we just wasted three million dollars on a super bowl ad haha we're so meta right there's like three or four commercials like that, I think. The E-Trade with the Dancing Monkey is one that really sticks out. Like, look how look how much, look how silly and frivolous it is that we did this, but it's being done in opposition to the expectation that what you're doing is of importance. This There's nothing about Keanu Reeves riding the motorcycle that uh, is like, seems like it's informed by the fact that you're watching a football game, that seems to be informed by the fact that everybody watching is already excited, that, see, that everybody's already paying attention. There's there's when even you think about Super Bowl ads that try to kind of boil it down, like during the recession, the the deeps of the recession, not that the economy is super great right now. But but during the depths of the recession, when it was all sort of like I'm a man and I'm suffering and my life stinks. And that was the sort of theme of all the advertisements. I'm a man's man and the world is difficult. Uh, there still was this sense that the, the commercial didn't have to, like, really, really, really command uh well, really command that it was that it was good or impressive or worth your time. Right. Um, I mean, it was sort of like everybody. At my- right, there was a sort of yeah, there was a sort of it's a sense of like the same way that that a newspaper, you know, 10 years ago didn't have to constantly worry about a discourse in which its credibility was being uh, 
was being threatened as, you know, hashtag fake news or whatever. Right. Like that, that there was a sense of uh, there was a sense of a settled order of there was a sense of a settled order of things. And there was a sense that, you know, the brand's big enough to to be there, even though the the uh, dot com boom, the first dot com boom you know, web van or, uh, you know, uh, cosmo.com or whatever. Were, <laughs> you could do were, anything on zombo.com. Anything is possible on zombo.com. <laughs> my favorite. I, I can't, I love the SNL commercial parody. That was www.clownpenis.fart. Like I thought that was, uh, maybe I was just, uh, you know, young and, and sophomoric at the time, but, um, the, the, right. There was a sense that like credibility was established, that it wasn't transparent transacted credibility wasn't transacted and now when you sort of like uh you buy your you buy your cred coin on the blockchain or whatever <laughs> right that uh that um there's a sense that that credibility is something that that you have to establish and actually credibility it's funny i was thinking about the word credibility in uh, today because the times uh wrote a in the times magazine which is kind of my sunday uh, rituals to to go to my favorite diner and sit with the Sunday New York Times and I read the magazine and I read different sections of the paper. It's in a religious order that I you know observe. Like one shall be the order of the Times Magazine in the reading order. Two shall be the order of the art section in the reading order, and so forth. Um, there was talk about credibility uh, and the root of of credibility being belief. Right. And I thought um, this wasn't in the article. This was what I sort of was thinking about as I was reading. There is a kind of an inductive and a deductive approach to credibility. Right. One, you look at what the largest number of people believe, and that's what's credible. Right. You look what is getting uh, the most attention, and that's what has gravitas. And then you can sort of look at credibility as believability as a kind of a priori judgment that is intrinsic in the thing being observed or in the assertion in the assertion being made. And it seems like there's something uh, there's something similar going on here, right? Like in the kind of the 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 frenetic scramble for attention, you know, the the uh, worthiness the the um, the accumulation of attention uh, is sort of an exercise in question begging um, because it uh, seems to stand in for worthiness for attention, right? Which is a different, which is a different thing. It's a, it's an a priori sort of consideration that like uh, is intrinsic in the in the thing being observed or in the claim being made, the assertion being advanced, but. Um, but yeah, the the uh, and I, I mean, there was so much about achievement and about an extraordinary achievement. And this this is a uh, Winter Olympics year, so there were a lot of uh, Winter Olympics commercials and and uh, uh, stuff about sort of exaltation and individual uh, individual effort. That was sort of one um, way. Uh, uh, that was one way it was it was working. So it's um yeah it's a it's a sort of it's a sort of multifaceted thing, and I think feeds into a lot of uh, cultural um, uh, trends at the moment. You know. Yeah, it's also interesting to think about in practical terms the desire to have your Super Bowl ad be talked about after the Super Bowl in order for it to make additional impressions and for it to be shared after the Super Bowl in order for it to get more eyeballs, which in the past being on the Super Bowl would have been enough. 
But now I don't think that is enough anymore for a lot of people. And the insecurity associated with that, I think, does come through to an extent in at what you've described. Yeah, is the claim, the claim to credibility that they seem to be making uh, through the way that they're arguing for themselves. These are commercials that argue for themselves as opposed to take for granted that you should care what they say. I, I believe, I think it seems. I don't know, Mark, does that answer your question? Um, a, a little bit. So I mean, we're kind of dancing around one particular ad that I think uh, is most of meriting of discussion. And I'm trying to... Weather, well, WeatherTech? <laughs> WeatherTech weather wins the jerk face award. WeatherTech. Oh, man. We'll talk about weather. We'll talk about WeatherTech later because I don't think you're talking about WeatherTech. It's inspiring we a million hot takes. But this one is inspiring a million plus another million hot takes. I am, of course, referring to the Dodge Ram ad <laughs> that uses a Martin Luther King Jr. speech to sell trucks. And it's got a lot of people on the Internet mad. And um, I, I, I mean, it, we're talking about a discourse of authority here. I mean, the, the the short answer, or at least the obvious thing that comes to mind, is that um, you know, Ram trucks don't have authority in and of themselves. Now, you know, the fact that it's a Super Bowl ad doesn't have that authority either. And so, therefore, you've got a truck in some MLK as well to provide authority. Is that what's going on? Oh, uh, no. Well, that's always, I mean, no, that's, yeah, that's, that's always been, that's always been a, a thing. Like, actually, the thing that the MLK ad, I found like a lot of, and you know, you guys know, I'm a sort of big softie and I am uh, profoundly affected by the most trivial and sentiment, stupid sentimental things i feel like it's because i have you know professional <laughs> training as an actor and uh and like jodie foster said in her inside the actor's studio segment like actors are the people who cry at the uh at the cheesy parts in movies when like the boy is reunited with his dog um so like i you know so don't, I, I don't i've learned not to take my own heartstrings being tugged as a signal of anything as like relating to any sort of truth claim about the goodness or badness of the uh of the thing under consideration it's just uh it's just what happens to me because of the way i am and um there there was a lot of heartstring tugging in this and the mlk uh, uh, speech sermon, actually. It's from a sermon that was delivered, uh, I guess, 50 years ago called uh, The Drum Major Instinct, which is about how our uh, how the the claim in the drum major instinct anyway is that the Christian thing to do is to kind of bend your desire for supremacy into uh, desire for moral supremacy, uh, which doesn't look like supremacy, but actually looks like service to others. Um, you know, when, when, uh, when something like, uh, when it was said, when it, let it be said that I, I was first, but let it be said that I was first in love. Let it be said that I was first in service and, and, uh, on and on from there. It's a, a fantastic piece of writing and we'll link it up in in the show notes but um but i the 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 thing that that reminded me of you guys remember a few years ago and god made a farmer yes right (laughs) this was the this was the woke god made a farmer you know this because it was the uh it was anti-woke or (laughs) anti-woke well I, i mean i don't know Ram Ram had a uh, mixed uh, mixed thing, but between the the Ram ads and the Jeep ad and uh, uh, Jeep ads, I should say, um, they had a, a really a set of mixed messages. When you consider it at the level of the corporate parent and try to find a uh, a, a discernibly coherent corporate story uh, in all the in 
all the mess. But no, I mean, that I feel like that was MLK was a move more about uh, sentimentality than it was about authenticity. Pete, you're talking more about bragging, uh, bragging as bragging, right? Yeah, this was I I felt like the ad was a, a series of kind of rhetorically related showboating incident like images that were meant as a defense of the core uh, sort of buying community for Ram trucks against the attacks that came all year that they were all racist, uh, which um, that's how I read this. I thought it was galling that they would put an MLK speech under an ad for a Dodge truck or a Ram truck. Uh, it's just because Ram just Ram trucks. I, I don't think of them as being trucks that are bought by black people. Uh, I mean, maybe they are, but like and I, and I don't mean to be reductive about it. I'm, I'm saying it. I think when I think about. The core buying audience for Ram trucks, I think about people from parts of the country that are largely white, uh, where they or, or even uh, pl- communities in urban areas and metro areas that are largely white, which have uh, conservative political leanings and where you have the kind of truck. So here's the thing. OK, let's break it down. Let's break it way, way down. OK, so the Ram truck is a very important vehicle in the history of cars. And the reason that the Ram truck is super important is because it marks the transition of the pickup truck from a work vehicle to a branded personal vehicle. The oh, Ram truck. Funny. I, th- I thought you were going to say because the nose of them looks completely stupid, looks completely <laughs> idiotic. That the body, that the the body styling is like a bad sci-fi movie. Altered carbon. No, actually, I'm about like. By the way, I'm about 70% of the way through Altered Carbon. I think it's really good. And maybe we will do a podcast about it. But Altered Carbon, Ram Truck. So so the Ram Truck was, as far as I know and as I understand it, the first pickup truck to really make a move in, in the direction of drivability and comfort to use as your everyday car. And so what's been happening in the United States over the course of the last, like, you know, 25 years is we've seen this interesting transformation in the stock kind of cars that different people buy based on their identity. And the big shift is away from sedans and towards SUVs and trucks. And then there's a big bifurcation where crossover SUVs are seen as more feminine and trucks are seen as more masculine. And so you have situations like Toyota has the Highlander and the Forerunner, the Highlander being a a unibus body crossover SUV and the forerunner being a ladder chassis, you know, a truck chassis uh, vehicle with some off-roading capability. Both are ostensibly mid-sized SUVs with like roughly the same day-to-day capabilities if you're just driving them around town. But demographically, they have extremely different uh, buying uh, customers, right? Very different customers. And a lot of pickup trucks don't get used as pickup trucks to the full capacity of what they have because they're symbolic. You get the pickup truck because you want to have a truck. You want to drive a truck. You want to be the kind of person who drives a truck. It's like a lot of other consumer goods. It's like seeing a, the rock jump through a window of a skyscraper in a movie. You go see that movie because you see yourself as the kind of person that wants to go see that movie, right? It's not like it's a unique shame among people who drive trucks that they uh, imbue their identity in things that they buy and want to see it sort of mirrored back to them in this fashion and cosmetic choices that they make about their sort of personal costume. It's all about building a personal brand. But but the but the Ram for for me and and uh, as I understand it was the first pickup truck to make this move to replace the big sedan as the man car. 
which it's done across the United States. And obviously now it's not, it doesn't sell more than the Silverado. It doesn't sell more than the F-150. These are the three or the F-Series, the Silverado and the Ram in general, 1500, what have you. These are the three big pickup trucks in the United States. And of course, overseas, we have smaller pickup trucks, but there's complex tax situations. But the point is that the Ram is not just a work truck. The Ram is a personal car that's really large and and says that you're masculine. I mean, women buy pickup trucks, too, in large numbers, but there's a masculine aspect to it. And there's this idea of working that's associated with it. And there's ideas of identity that are bound up in it. So for me, it's also associated, in in my estimation, with uh, the sort of... uh, by coastal versus rural, the sort of urban versus rural divide, the way that the American the American sectional divide, which used to be north and south and is now a uh, fancy place in the city, not fancy place in the city, or, yeah, as I opposed mean, to like rich place in the city, poor place in the city, because those are the same. Like the rich place really, is right next to the poor place, but the fancy place and the not fancy place are not are like a little bit farther apart. Are geographically uh, separated by by a lot of time. It's interesting. It's a, the opposition is center versus edge. But yeah. center and edge are inverted because the the center of gravity in terms of wealth and power is at the edge just geographically in this country, which is an interesting thing. Except it's been flowing into the center. Like we've been going through this weird transformation where the money has been coming out of the exurbs and like into the middle of the city, both also through sort of generational transfer, too. And so and that's creating this weird kind of purpley melded effect where you see pickup trucks increasingly in, you know, inner ring suburbs in some places, provided that the demographics and identities and perceptions of the inner ring suburb fit. Now, what what I would connect this with is the idea of working as part of your identity. And and I might get a little bit controversial here. uh, And I apologize because I probably already got a little controversial. There is definitely a very powerful political feeling in the country of people who derive a lot of their personal dignity from working for a living who are very angry at people who don't work for a living and yet get help from the government. Right. That's not a con- I don't think it's a controversial statement to say this phenomenon exists, that there are people who are who work for a living or see, see everybody. A lot of people work for a living. Let's let's put aside that they actually work for a living. Let's say that for that there is a sort of identity here that invests a lot of itself in the idea that it works for a living. It's oriented around labor, not around capital. And and it sees its sort of personal value in the jobs that it does. And so. What we've seen in the United States is like a shift in political economy where this group, where while it is not the least advantaged group, has seen its relative level of advantage like really drop over the course of the past like 15 years because labor has been devalued and assets have been valued. Right. Capital has been valued. Labor has been devalued. Education is valued. Healthcare is more expensive. Uh, all, all this sorts of, this sort of barriers are getting higher. Uh, but the point being that this group still exists and still very much identifies itself with the way that it works, right, that, that we work. And they have a rather, I think, polarized perception of the people that work and the people that don't work. And this polarized perception for, seen from the other side gets seen as racism, right, as in like, OK, well, the white people hate the black people. Um, now, there are dynamics that are valid to this on both sides, but from either side, it, it's an oversimplification. Uh, and there's the sides don't break down one for one, right? But like when you think about uh, the NFL and football being the sport of these people, right? This is the most popular sport in the United States uh, that, that and everybody is watching it, right? Uh, but a lot of these people really love this sport. And then you see these people from these areas that aren't 
the really uh, kind of like inner city areas. They're a little bit on the outside, the Staten Islands of the world. And then you see this com- the complaining about police brutality in like different areas, which are have a different political economy. And this idea of like, well, you are being shamed because we have problems in our political economy and we're on this side and you're on this side and we're kind of segregated and you're hurting us. But they don't perceive themselves as being in an advantageous situation. And there's conflict. I, I'm not saying anything that's too groundbreaking here. Right, Mark and Matt? I'm not like wildly off the reservation here. No, we're with you no, so that, far. Keep going. Yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, until until you said off the reservation. Well, I shouldn't have said that. That's very mean to say. That's a, that, I should remove that. I should remove that from my lexicon. That's one of those terms that you don't think of the connotations before you say it. I apologize. But the point being that all of these factors have built into football and and the sh- the broad shaming of football that has been happening this whole year for good reasons and bad. Uh, for you know the head injury stuff, especially for the brutality stuff. Uh, the police brutality protests have been very polarizing, and. Honestly, I can't see this Dodge Ram commercial except in the context of this large group of people who are target customers for Dodge Ram trucks who really hate the fact that they've been called racist. Uh, and you know what? Maybe they are racist. Maybe they're not. I, I Again, it's like certainly nobody's doing anything to fix the police brutality problem, which is still sitting out there. And it was a huge freaking travesty that nobody did anything about it or said anything about it. The entire Super Bowl, even though it was clearly on everybody's minds. Um, and it felt like it was behind everything. Uh, right, it's become to... it's become inextricably linked with NFL football, uh, you know, because of the the particular the particular protests and actually kind of the 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 opposition to the protest to the take a knee protest uh, um, sort of movement that is spread through the NFL actually kind of threw gasoline on the fire, right? Like made it an even more polarizing. Uh, uh, political, you know, political issue, the, the, the sort of enraged opposition to, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. to, to what pe- what people were doing. Yeah. It's be, and it's become sort of, uh, inextricably, um, uh, inextricably linked to that. And that like, and also like it's, but the, the other thing is like the culture of football and the culture of the people who are likely to play football in communities where football is very important for, uh, for high schoolers and sort of Friday night lights and, and, um, all of that stuff and the, the, you know, and the concussion stuff, right? Like it's, it, it's, um, it takes place against a, a background of, of rapid social change. And I mean, it's been a theme of, it's been a theme of, um, Super Bowl commercials for as long as I've been aware of them anyway, that like they're about, uh, asserting or kind of carving out space for masculinity, um, whatever that means that, uh, you know, ad hoc to the particular brand and the particular product being sold. Um, they're about car- in, you know, in the face of, of what is perceived as an assault on masculinity on, you know, and these are all sexist tropes, but like on henpecked husbands or on, you know what I mean? On, on men who are not appreciated or, you know, uh, uh, the kind of the forceful warrior men, there was a lot of stuff about first responders, the, the sort of militarization of the Super Bowl is, is more or less complete. And so there's this, you know, there's this power aggression, dominance, uh, uh, work, um, kind of, uh, uh, hairball that all gets kind of <laughs> tangled up together, like conflated, um, conflated together. And, you know, 
it's it and it's happening in against the background of rapid social change rapid social change uh as to how men and women relate what kinds of behaviors are uh, going to be acceptable or or at least are going to be unremarked on and unpunished uh, in the culture uh, happening against the ba- a rapid social change of like who has access to uh, the means of mass communication right of of who has who who is making a loud noise who has you know uh, access to um, legitimate claims of uh, legitimate claims of grievance right in in uh, uh, in the culture, and a lot of that stuff was being um, was being kind of renegotiated in these commercials, which were which seemed on their surface kind of anodyne. Uh, the the Ram commercials, uh, the Ram commercials accepted, and maybe the 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 Kia Steven Tyler Fantasia um, accepted as well, because that was a, a psychedelic trip of of you know, proportions. I don't even, I mean, do people think of, of like Kia's as boring cars and they want to, they want to feel like, uh, they have a sports car or a GT or something like I mean, that. That's that the stinger can... that you can talk about the Kia stinger. It's, it's basically what you're talking about, but yeah, it's fine. Continue. Yeah. All right. Like, uh, that other than that, the commercials seemed kind of, kind of anodyne, uh, to me and even, even a little Baroque in their, in their self-referentiality, which is another thing that, that I want to get into. But, but Pete, I feel like we, we haven't let you kind of finally cash out yeah. uh, the last part of your, your argument. So I want to give you the space to do so, that. So, so here's the point. The point is that these are the people who are the police officers. These are the people who are the military families, a lot of them, right? These are people who see themselves as targets for this. The point of the art of the ad is not to say from a place of authority, this is football, this is trucks, this is who you are, this is uh, this is kind of what your your masculinity means. It is a showboating ad that bombards and assaults the viewer with an argument on behalf of valuing and paying attention to these people instead of other people. And it includes a powerful counter argument against the accusation that these people are racist by taking this Martin Luther King speech and putting it under things like giving aid to disadvantaged people in the, you know, through the military. Right. So so like that's that's what it is. It's like, OK, we are no longer going to take for granted that these people are valued by football. We are going to assert it. That you are valued and you are awesome. And we're going to show you this bizarre. I mean, it's bizarre to me. It was I, I joked that it seemed like it was a montage developed by machine learning because every image hit really hard, but they were more or less unrelated to each other uh, on a surface level. So it was like guy with his kid, ultrasound, chicken flying through the sky. There's a Black Hawk helicopter with Martin Luther King talking. And, and it's just like, you know and color guards and trucks pulling a house and and it's all this stuff and and to me it feels like an an argument that is very similar to Tyrion Lannister lip-syncing Buster Rhymes it is a sort of argument from virtuosity a performative argument that is saying look how wonderful i am by virtue of how awesome these images are you know validate this pay attention to this 
Uh, and in that sense, the, the Kia is doing the same thing. The Stinger is Kia's attempt to move into the sports sedan segment. It's something of a transformative car, and it's a big, big news in the car world. So the, the Kia Stinger commercial bringing Kia into the sort of classic rock muscle car, you know, NASCAR culture through the Aerosmith Superman one gag winding back the clock is kind of the same thing. It's making an argument that I belong here. Um, you don't let people chase you away. You belong here. You need to be here. You ought to be here. Uh, is is kind of the argument that this commercial is making on behalf of the people who are watching it and on behalf of the brand. Uh, right. The interesting yeah. thing to me in the Kia in the uh, Kia um, Benetton ad commercial was that it was a Benetton ad, right? Like it was a multi ethnic. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, all ages, all uh, you know, multi gender. You know. Um, sort of uh right sort of amalgam sort of sort of melting pot and so there was a uh there was a claim of i mean there was a kind of a fast one there's a kind of like switcheroo in terms of cultural legitimacy because it was um you know it was meant to to almost claim claim kin right to kind of claim membership in the uh, you know, you think you sort of multi multi ethnic millennials, you know, you sort of, uh, you know, uh, non binary identities, you, you know, people have all the, the cultural authority. Well, no, our segment is still here and we are a legitimate um, we are a legitimate member of this culture or we're at least legitimate claimants to the Iron Throne of cultural authority. <laughs> so much Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> Right. It's the it's the war of the five market segments. Yeah, is what it is. You know, um, anyway, we, we've been we've been I want to kind of move on to a couple of other themes in the uh, in the commercials. And we have uh, uh, also the, the halftime show to talk about as well. It struck me that like I, I was definitely I was de- I'm definitely feeling you, Pete, on the like um, the claim to. Uh, worthiness for attention or kind of claim to worthiness for membership. Um, I feel like there was also a, there was a uh, mirror image discourse about disadvantage and like the, the sort of physical disability um, illness in the Hyundai ad about uh, uh, pediatric cancers, right? Like um, there was a sort of sense of relationship between uh, but, I mean, I guess the thing is, like, what are, what are the grounds for legitimacy, right? And, like, the grounds, the, the sort of relationship between humility and apotheosis or the relationship between disadvantage and apotheosis was something that I started tracking through a lot of these ads, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that the idea that, like, um, the uh, – and the, the sort of the brand providing the, the gateway, like the, the Hyundai ads about um, – pediatric cancers and then donating to uh, to research for uh, terrible diseases that cause suffering and how like you are participating in that by by buying a Hyundai um, that like that uh, the um, you know uh, you are uh, the odds are stacked against you as a um, you know uh, as a Paralympian, but you, through sort of hard work and perseverance, you you're, you achieve your apotheosis uh, as a champion, right? Like that there was this, this that, that the, it's not just the bragging, that there were kind of two sides to mm-hmm. that, to that coin. Um, the supremacy came with 
it's I mean, it's almost like it's it's almost like hashtag humble brag a little bit like uh, now all these now all brags are humble. You know, that that all brags have to be humble, that it has to be a a kind of overcoming rather than a kind of um, rather than a kind of domination uh, in terms of what makes legitimate grounds for being worthy of attention. Yeah, there were definitely different tactics and schemes and even just baseline ethical assumptions about what makes something worthy of attention. And that were showcasing the different ads. I, I would even frame it as a pause theosis, as in like the transformation into Oz. Think about it. It's like you walk down the road, you go through the gate, you go into the back room and that giant head appears on a screen and sort of tells you sort of the nature of right and wrong and what's going to happen to you. And then the curtain comes back and you see the real person. Right. It's like they haven't just become God in the sense of the apotheosis, but they've become the wonderful Wizard of Oz taking you on this journey. Uh, <laughs> And Pay you don't no really attention get the... to the hand, to the demand behind the carpet, to the altered carbon. <laughs> yes, the altered carbon, the altered carbon. Uh, yeah, there was definitely this idea of, and when you say so, apotheosis. I understand apotheosis as transformation into the godhood, into divinity, is apotheosis. Like going super saiyan is apotheosis. Is that is that how you understand apotheosis, or am I am I oversimplifying here? I uh, what is it? I, oh, is it be, like becoming becoming godlike? I think it's like achieving. I think of like Greek warriors in the Iliad achieving their apotheosis as they like do their beautiful attack and die on the field. Oh, yes. Yeah, so so and so gets stabbed in the nipple and the darkness swirls before their eyes. And in that moment, there's something like a god. Like, yeah, it's like, right. Exactly. It's like a it's like a kind of combination of of excellence and sublimity that mm-hmm. that is the kind of like uh you know, sort of per, uh, a personal zenith, you know, because in America, regular people become gods through smoke and mirrors uh, is, is kind of the tradition, right? Like Johnny Appleseed with a pot on his head and uh, and the wonderful Wizard of Oz and uh, and Nikola Tesla and Albert Einstein. Uh <laughs> Um, like maybe they're functional smoke and functional mirrors, but the the art and craft of becoming uh, godlike in, in America is it's kind of interesting. Uh, but this uh, this sense of sort of tragic, uh, tragic in the old Greek sense, uh, you know, sort of this pathos and agon of transformation. Totally. Even even the rock having the prosthetic whilst hanging uh, from the building, whilst swinging towards the window to presumably crash through to save Nev Campbell, who is not Carla Gugino, but playing the part this time uh, from the burning skyscraper. Uh, that is interesting. This uh, the sense of like it becomes a great deed. It's you guys. I mean, we've talked about wild hearts can't be broken, right? On the podcast before. <laughs> In 500 episodes, I'm sure it's come up. I can't remember it off the yeah. top of my head. It, it's it's one of the most important movies. Uh, and don't get me wrong, Mark. You know this one, right? It's the one about the horse jumping. No, I'm afraid I don't. Oh, so this is a so this is a Disney movie that relates that has some. This is sort of like I might even posit it as a sort of uh, anti ableist dances with wolves, which is when like an able person becomes disabled and then shows disabled people that they can do amazing things, Um, which is that uh, which is that um, a, a girl is in the depression is has a job where she jumps. She gets on a horse. She like climbs up to the top of a ladder and a horse like runs down a chute and she jumps on the horse. And then whilst on the back of the horse jumps off of a high dive into a giant vat of water 
And this is her act that she jumps on the horse and then jumps off of the vat of water and splashes. And everyone's like, wow, it's a carnival. It's great. And her horse, uh, she doesn't get to use her regular horse anymore. And so she she has to use this sort of visiting horse that's wild and, and not as kind. And she doesn't have the bond with it. And there's a very intense sexual metaphor having to do with kind of sexual assault and the kind of loss of the familiar and the sort of dangerous masculine. And something goes wrong and she hits the water with her eyes open and is blinded. And so, of course, the natural conclusion is that she must, whilst blind, learn how to continue to jump off of a high dive while riding a horse. <laughs> so it's like about her training with her old horse that she knows very well to be able to conduct this carnival act through touch alone. Right. So like hearing him, like feeling his mane, like jumping onto his back and then able to soar off the high dive into the giant vat of water while blind and still able to do it. It takes for granted that this is something that needs to happen at all <laughs> it's well it argues for itself by showing it as being beautiful and, but but this idea of the wild heart can't be broken is the heart of the girl it's the heart of the horse but it's this idea of all the horse jumps that she did when she could see are nothing compared to the horse jump that she could do when she was blind like that's the impressive one because that one is where she had to really prove that her relationship with her horse has gone to her next level and that she had really proved her relationship with herself had gone to the next level, that she really understood what it meant and she'd overcome the challenge. Now, I don't want to trivialize this sort of thing in general. It is important to overcome challenges in your life and it's especially admirable to overcome disability and achieve great things. But there's also a very stock sort of narrative about Let's make this thing that this person is doing more impressive by having them suffer an overwhelming and yet utterly trivial disability along the way, such as like, oh, no, I only have one leg. How am I going to jump into this burning building by trying? Right. Like like and I and I get it and it's good. But you can also sort of see that there's a bit a bit of a side of it that I think is a little bit Hollywood, you know, which is understandable. It's Hollywood. It's it's sort of what sure. It it's like well, right. It's like it's like a little bit. I was listening to a. uh uh, an interview with with Kumail Nanjiani, and he was talking about his movie The Big Sick, which is about his, uh, so good. A, 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 yeah, it's a really good movie, and it's adapted from his life. And uh, he he said that the the uh, and it's about his wife, who actually got his now wife, who got very sick uh, in the early stages of their relationship and was in a coma. Um, and he said uh, he said it was very important to us writing this movie that. Um, that the woman didn't get sick so that the man character could have a chance to grow up. Right. And yeah. like the, 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 the part of this that is worthy of ridicule, right. Is the part that, uh, uh, I don't know, reduces the, the lived experience of various kinds of disadvantage into pat, pat moral lessons. Right. Yeah. Uh, to sell Hyundai's. That's, but, uh, right. Exactly. <laughs> but, but I, I'll just point out that, that, uh, Gabrielle Anwar, um, went on to become Fiona in Burn Notice, and uh, right, Gabriel Edwards is awesome. Yeah, the the uh, the wildest heart that can't just, uh, be be broken. Anyway, Pete and I have been going on for a minute here. Mark, did you notice a theme uh, or a uh, a through line to the commercials that seemed particularly worthy of note to you? Yeah, uh, we we touched upon it briefly, and it's the sophistication of the audience and a lot of meta and behind the scenes uh, stuff that really speaks to that and i'm sure that you know there's a, a you know a healthy crop of them each super bowl year but um if we're in the business of 
describing grand narratives of Super Bowl commercials within the four hours of the telecast and then across the decade of this podcast that we've been doing it, sure, let's go for that. And let's say that audiences are getting more sophisticated and they're more capable of handling meta humor in its in advertising, particular in a context of, that is to say the Super Bowl telecast uh, that people have grown up with and are really constant, uh, really comfortable with the with the framework. Um, I'll throw out a bunch of examples here. Um, the first and foremost being the series. There must have been at least four, I think, of Tide ads, right? Starring David Harbour of Stranger Things fame and kind of playing off of Super Bowl ad tropes. Um, the beer ad, the car ad, and even in one particular instance, the specific Old Spice ad, even bringing back the Old Spice pitch man. Um, to you know, not pitch Old Spice, but to pitch Tide instead, which is a kind of a mind blowing thing to see there. Um, a couple of lesser um, examples of this would be uh, the Michelob and Pringles ads. I think they're actually like back to back, released in the same commercial segment, where it kind of went behind the scenes of the set and making commercials and dealing with actors and signing them up for deals and working with actors on a set uh, to get them to pitch products. Um, and then lastly, I don't even remember what the ad was for, but somebody was playing off of the YouTube ad format, which specifically gives you a, like, you know, skip this ad in f- 14 seconds button in the bottom right hand corner and kind of playing off of that and saying, ah, you can't do this because this isn't YouTube and here you have to watch this ad. Um, so that meta-ness essentially was a through line that I saw throughout. And I'll pose it to you guys if you feel like it is, in fact, a sign that the uh, the audience is getting more sophisticated and that advertisers are trying to appeal to that or if something else might be going on. I think you're right on that. I think that they the audience knows more and they want to play to the audience's familiarity and not ignore it. But it's it. also – sure, absolutely. And also there is this like – there is this sense of like, well, you're a discerning consumer who's not taken in by things. So let me deliver you an ad about how you're a discerning consumer <laughs> who's not taken in by things, right? That, that you're not a chump, certain- but we're counting on you to be a chump because we're serving you yeah, this no, ad. No, you're you're not a chump. So so you'll like our ad because our ad is for non-chumps. <laughs> All those chumps over there should not even watch this tide. Uh, should not even watch this Tide ad. I mean, like a, n- a number. I sort of like the. Uh, I, I like the the one for the voice that was. Um, oh yeah, that was good too. <laughs> you know, completely bizarre. Where they were, they were sort of narrating the the the. Um, you know, commonplace characteristics, I guess tropes, right? They were narrating the tropes as we do it. Like, now I'm standing in a field with a long train and I'm Kelly Clarkson, everybody. And that, you know, um, that that was a, that was another thing about the meta-ness, the sort of the the particular personalities. Maybe I'm maybe I've aged out of a good target demographic, or maybe I've aged into a good target demographic, but like literally everything, um, every personality uh, in a Super Bowl ad with someone who I had like a relationship with, not only the personalities, but also the, the sort of choices of music and things like that. Like the music box version of All Apologies that was advertising T-Mobile, 
right? The the babies, and it was about how you know how we won't we won't tolerate oppression anymore. <laughs> Choose T-Mobile. Uh, <laughs> like, for, like, oh, it's all gotten next level, man. It's all through the looking oh glass. <laughs> because a, you're not a chump. You're not going to get oppressed by your wireless carrier. Here's some Nirvana music and babies. Well, and, then, and then, by the way, the whole Sprint's whole thing right now is that they've dressed up the Can You Hear Me Now guy in uh you know in um uh in yellow and because verizon is being now advertised by the ceo of pied piper from hbo silicon valley right and that like uh you know who who doesn't exactly even have a product um (laughs) like it's gone you know it's gone completely uh it's gone completely crazy i i will say that the one part in which the sort of the personalities uh the the personalities w- didn't work for me was in the uh Star Wars anthology movie uh, ad for solo right because it was sort of like Woody Harrelson and Donald Glover and you know it it was like they they were uh, Amelia Clark was in that there were these kind of one shots of of these actors that it was like here's an actor you recognize that's in this movie right and uh, i i feel like in star wars no one is supposed to be bigger than the game you know and that like a little bit those actors were bigger than the game um you know certainly mark hamill harrison ford you know they weren't carrie fisher when they when they started out um and that that like now it's kind of it's kind of come to that and it was a it was a like it had a cheapening effect for me on what i i i feel like star wars because i feel like the star of star wars should always be star wars and uh you know i don't know it 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 didn't have that so that that was a kind of a backfiring of this effect in terms of like the kind of the recognition and the uh you know the the sophistication that that the audience is supposed to have but like yeah definitely there was a um um definitely there was a kind of a, a a move toward the meta uh pete anything on meta before we get into uh before we get into the halftime show but just that when i saw amelia clark in the han solo ad i, I just i audibly said oh no because <laughs> it was blonde amelia clark from sarah from uh terminator genesis <laughs> it yeah. was the vibe that i got i was like oh no this movie's gonna be terrible <laughs> Uh, which is not necessarily meant as a dig against Amelia Clark, but more along the the desperation that it takes to think that merely by showing us Amelia Clark, you are going to secure all the Game of Thrones fans to come see your movie. Uh, it's just like, oh no. Uh, but I will say to add to that, to add to my and depart somewhat from my general lack of enthusiasm for Solo, uh, the the uh, the movie, not the skier. Um, skiing is awesome. Uh, that was Lindsey Vaughn, not Hope Solo. Did I have the have people wrong? I go mess up my names and my Olympians all the time. It was Hope Solo a skier? It doesn't matter. What matters is I did love the meta-ness of the Jeep Wrangler ad, which I did say that we would... Oh, she's a soccer player. Never mind. Uh, I was thinking of somebody else. But anyway, the Jeep Wrangler ad had the meta-ness where it was like, hey, you know all those other ads that the very same company that, that makes this car made that have all these characteristics that seem inauthentic? This is a, a car that can go off-road and climb up the rocks on the edge of a river. And if you want that to happen, this is pretty much the only car that you can get that will do this this well. Uh, that's that's fair. <laughs> that's That's totally fair. That is... 
a great ad <laughs> and uh and the jeep wrangler is the rare sort of product that can kind of credibly make that sort of claim to being pretty much the only game in town at, at doing the thing that it says it does uh i mean yes there are other offered vehicles but the the singular reputation of the wrangler in terms of its segment and its price and all that stuff is is pretty well deserved especially since For so many price, of the yeah, other options I mean, you can yeah. you can get a land rover right but that's not yeah. that's not within the the reach of the average working american right yeah. And I mean, you could get a, you know, a, you know, TRD offer. Yeah, it's not going to do it. You get a G wagon. That's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's not going to that's not going to cut it. And there, you couldn't can't even get an Xterra anymore because they don't make them. Uh, so, I mean, you get a forerunner, as we've mentioned, but the Wrangler is going to be better. So um, and it's also just more of a sort of dedicated vehicle, smaller. The small wheelbase is pretty important for real rock climbing. But the, <laughs> the point being, that, <laughs> let's not let's not say that the meta let's 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 not fall into the trap of of mere of, of finding comfort in the thought that advertising is a cynical and useless business and sort of rewarding ourselves and patting ourselves on the back for recognizing that people are sometimes tricked and defrauded as if that's the sort of full answer to everything that's happening because that jeep ad didn't defraud anybody if you get a jeep wrangler you can ride it up the rocks on the side of a river, potentially, if you want. And that's the reason that you would get it. And even if you don't do it, the fact that it can do it is the reason that you would get it. So, yeah, maybe on a sort of ideological level, you would consider buying a Jeep Wrangler to be like an objectionable thing. Like, for example, that Martin Luther King speech that was so liberally quoted in defense of people accused of racism, uh, which I believe, Mark, you told me before the show, in part does advise people not to spend money buying cars, right? It specifically says that, yeah. I mean, in the context of other, like, you know, uh, his broader economic philosophy, but basically says, don't spend too much money on cars, you guys. Yeah. And and it's like, OK, you know, that that's 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 one attitude that's important and an argument that makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, if you're going to spend a lot of money on a car and you want it to climb up the rocks on the side of a river or like get a Jeep Wrangler. Great. I don't I don't really think that I, what I'm saying is that I, if we if we lead too hard in the direction of of laughing at how kind of like cynically manipulative advertising and marketing are the laughter gives us a sense of comfort that lets us think that our active analysis is finished when it is not necessarily there might be other things that are also happening so let's not necessarily just stop at the laugh and say no i mean i the thing the thing the thing that strikes me about the um uh the the uh the thing that strikes me about this move in particular is how old-fashioned it is in a particular sense, right? It reminds me of a, a, a kind of Chili's or TGI Friday's ad, which, you know, the, the basic claim of which is, like, you've never had jalapeno yeah. poppers like this before. <laughs> yes, I have. Like, <laughs> a, and if I haven't, it wasn't of omission, out of omission. It was just out of random chance. <laughs> yeah, right. the, the, the claim of, like, of the tight ads is, like, you've never seen a tight ad. Like, oh, you think you're in one thing, but you're in another thing. You've never seen a tight ad like this before. You've never seen meta discourse like this before. You've never seen a bait-and-switch substitution like this before, right? And it's the old, you know, it's, it's – uh, it's the oldest trick in the book, right? Like that, that, that is to say that the, um, like it's a, it's a claim. It's a, a particular kind of a claim for uniqueness. And that in this kind of move to, uh, flatter the presumed sophistication of the audience, they end up doing, uh, 
uh, you know, they end up going back to the sort of to the old playbook. One last one last thing before um, one last thing before uh, we move on to the halftime show in in what time remains to us, <laughs> what little time remains to us. Um, Less time even than the halftime show took place in, uh, which perhaps is what it deserves. The the um, the prevalence of the streaming services, YouTube TV sponsored something, uh, Amazon Fire TV sponsored something. They sponsored a segment of the show, uh, and then Netflix was was a presence, especially in the the uh, Cloverfield sequel, which began streaming immediately after. I mean, I would have thought that sort of. Um, Netflix's business model is to drive subscriptions and, you know, recurring payments. So I would have thought that like longer lead time uh, would be better for that. But I guess any stunt that sort of creates awareness uh, is good for, you know, is good for kind of Netflix's marketing effort. Anything that keeps it sort of top of mind, uh, top of mind for consumers. And it struck me that like, um, uh, I, I, you know, it struck me that like I, I'm not totally sure how to think about this. Is this like if uh, if broadcast TV had any cloud anymore, they would shut these guys out, shut out the streaming services, which are the kind of the big uh, disruptive kind of disaggregating um, players that are keeping them from uh, dominating the market anymore, or is it more like the kind of the the Web 1.0? Uh, boom that like look we'll take we'll take anybody's stupid money right like we'll take stupid money from any source and if youtube tv thinks that like you know sponsoring a segment on uh on the super bowl halftime show is going to move the needle for them like uh, by all means as long as your check clears your money says you know your brand color made you red but your money's as green as anyone else's um it, it but it's a you know i mean it's an interesting thing that that both kind of uh, highlights the difference of the streaming services and also kind of reduces them to kind of another player for your attention in this marketplace of attention. Okay, Justin Timberlake. Let's, uh, <laughs> yeah, we won't go into that topic deeper. We'll go right to Justin yeah, Timberlake. Yeah, let's, All right, let's, fair let's, enough. Let's, let's not. I mean, like, yeah. that's left to an exercise in the reader. We can talk this through. We can sort of talk this through in the comments if, if you want. The two knocks I've heard, because this is the era of the hot take and the fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji thing, the two the two knocks I've heard on the Justin Timberlake thing in in the mere minutes um, since you know Super Bowl Fifty Two came down is that it is uh, that um, that it was boring and I I mean I think we can kind of analyze what is meant by boring uh, briefly and also that the uh, the Prince thing was an abomination. Now I'm gonna go I'm a I, I may offend some people I may get controversial here. But I think the Prince thing wasn't an abomination. It wasn't like a Prince hologram. They weren't trying to bring him back from the dead. They were in Minneapolis, right? And they actually played footage of Prince doing a thing that a lot of people really liked. Actually doing something a lot better than the way Justin Timberlake <laughs> was doing it at the time, which is performing in an awesome Super Bowl halftime show. Um, it was in the spirit of homage. If I could change one thing, it was I would I would not have JT harmonizing along with him because that made it a duet and it shouldn't have been a duet. It should have been uh, it should have been sing singular. But uh, let's just do quick around the horn before we get to whether it was boring or not. Uh, Prince Prince uh, cameo or Prince tribute abomination or not abomination. Mark Lee abomination or not abomination. <laughs> 
I will say was not an abomination. <laughs> I understand why people are extremely upset about this, in particular because of the context of Justin Timberlake doing it and the racial politics around him. If uh, lest I, if you need reminding, right, the wardrobe malfunction. People say that Justin Timberlake got away with it, and Janet Jackson's uh, career really took a big hit from that, and she took all the fall for it. And now you have uh, Justin Timberlake getting up uh, on again on the Super Bowl stage and appropriating uh, black music. Uh, uh, in a very specific way, uh, in a way that he's done generally. Uh, yes, uh, him, him, and and, and and millions of other white musicians. I'm not really le- le- leveling that criticism against Justin Timberlake, but if you're looking for that sort of narrative, then well, it's there for you to take, I suppose. I'm not signing on to it, but it's there, and it, it, I can see why it's possible to construct it, and I see why it's a compelling narrative. Pete, Prince at the Super Bowl, abomination or not abomination? Abomination. Justin Timberlake has virtually nothing to do with Prince in any sort of stylistic manner. And his act tonight in particular didn't highlight the aspects of his performance career that have anything to do with Prince, including Prince was the kind of abomination like the episode of South Park where Kyle's father wants to become a dolphin and has a fin sewn onto his back by a plastic surgeon. It was a brutal juxtaposition by force. It made no sense. It had nothing to do with the music. It had nothing to do with the dancing. just even even the fact that it was attempting to exploit the career of someone whose career peaked well nigh 30 years ago, <laughs> uh, because apparently the person whose career peaked 10 years ago isn't enough to have uh, as the center of attention at a Super Bowl halftime show. You talk about apotheosis. Beyonce at the Super Bowl is an apotheosis. Prince at the Super Bowl is an apotheosis. This is your opportunity as an artist to achieve a broadly viewed manner of apotheosis. And punting that to Prince, it's a crime against art. It's a crime against you. It's a crime against them. Let the dead rest. It was stupid. It was pointless. Uh, and, let, the dead, you know, let the dead bury the dead. As uh, as Jesus said to his to his disciples. All right, you're getting Pete. You're you're kind of verging on criticism of the whole thing uh, artistically. I feel like uh, it lacked uh, it lacked a singular vision. Uh, it lacked decent melodies and anything to kind of hang your hat on. I feel like it got marginally better as it went on, as it played more to JT's strengths in the latter uh, parts of the halftime show. But uh, what what is your sort of larger scale uh, larger scale take? hot take on uh, the JT halftime show. So medleys can't just be ands. Medleys, medleys in general are terrible <laughs> where you just play a bunch of songs in a row. Like you ever be at a, been at a wedding and they just play that medley of all of the Grease songs or the medley of all the, the medley of the classic wedding songs is the worst because you're really excited to start hearing shout by the Isley brothers and you get like one stanza of it and then it moves on to like some other nonsense. Uh, medleys are garbage. They are, if you want, if the reason a song is in a medley is because the people recognize the song and want to hear the song. Just having a shorter version of it with a bunch of other songs is stupid because why? what you're doing is you're saying, you know that song you wanted to hear? You're not going to hear it. I'm going to remind you that we're not going to play the whole thing for you. Yes, there's the moment of like, yay, but then there's the moment of, oh, 
if I didn't want to hear the song, you wouldn't have put it in the medley in the first place. So in order for a medley to serve a purpose, there has to be something more than an and. There needs to be some sort of progression. There needs to be some sort of structure. There needs to be some sort of relation that the songs have to each other that feels natural. There there has to be some sort of point when the song transitions from one song to another song where it adds something that wasn't wouldn't have been there if you just played the two songs back to back. Uh, and the fact that you don't have enough time to play all of Justin Timberlake's songs does not say to me that they all need to be shorter. It says to me that you need to not play all of his songs. You need to do something else with the time. Uh, I mean, granted, we've all spent a lot of time designing halftime shows, and I dare say putting together a lot of medleys that were better than this one. Uh, I didn't really work on the medleys as much as you two guys did. But uh, but I feel like a medley where there's no moment of recognition and joy between two songs is just a waste of everybody's time. Just play sexy back beginning to end and call it a day. If you're just going to, yeah, I mean, I wrote both, both Mark and I wrote, uh, arranged for, for brass band, right. A lot of medleys for a marching band in college, uh, because, uh, Mark, Mark took the mantle of, of, uh, you know, marching band arranger from me when I graduated. And I feel like the, the most important chord in a medley of any two songs is the chord that transitions from, uh, one, one uh song to the other because there are so many ways that you can do it and the way in which you link the two uh the two together really says everything about what your artistic purpose is in uh doing the medley i mean now that maybe that's a little overinflated and bombastic i after all wrote a 16 bar brass fanfare on the theme of from Puff the Magic Dragon, so uh, I might not be uh, I might not be the guy to criticize. Matt, Matt uh, it's Mark. the halftime show at the Super Bowl. Too bombastic is not an appropriate criticism. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, Mark. What did you think of JT? Well, my one comment on medleys is that um, my uh, apotheosis in that area was meddling. Um, I can see clearly now the rain is gone and uh, ironic in service of our Oedipus Rex halftime show. Um, it hasn't, it's been all downhill from there is what I'm saying in terms <laughs> of med- medleys, at least for me. Uh, the halftime show, I thought it was fine. Um, that's probably damning with faint praise, especially when it comes to the Super Bowl and we're looking for bombast. Um, in credit for the show, I thought it was a novel, interesting use of space. Um, it started out claustrophobic, like a small room, and it was very confusing and disorienting. Only later we find out they're actually under the stadium, kind of like you know working their way onto the stage. Um, they they you know they worked their way around the stage. They kind of used it the, like small sub stages rather than a large stage, which uh, I'd say feature, not a bug. Um, and then finally uh, ends with temporary like going into the stands into the rafters and there's side note the hilarious thing with the boy with the phone who like was just staring at the phone instead of like jamming with justin timberlake that was pretty funny but you know he he moved about the space right he ascended from the lower anterior region up up into the rafters um achieving a a physical apotheosis in that regard i suppose yeah yeah. katie perry rode on a freaking comet all right so don't tell me about justin timberlake rising to the rafters because he walked halfway up the stairs oh how lady gaga Gaga literally flew in from on high (laughs) okay okay timberlake didn't fly but again he moved from point a did did he jump off the roof of the dome Did he do that? I I suppose he did. Like I said, guys, it was fine. (laughs) Almost more than, I mean, almost more than Katy Perry or Lady Gaga, um, though certainly not more than Prince. uh, He is, um, 
Justin Timberlake is a, a, just a good performer, like a solid singer and dancer, like a really good entertainer uh, in the kind of the triple threat, the kind of old school triple threat sense of what being an entertainer was. And, and the successful moments to me were the moments that played to those strengths and the unsuccessful moments were the ones that tried to, uh, I don't know, reach for, reach for something that, that maybe was, was, uh, beyond his, uh, beyond his reach. Ah, but Justin Timberlake's reach should exceed his grasp for what's a halftime show. Four. Let's go around the horn. Parting shots. Uh, you get one topic that we haven't talked about yet on the um, on the podcast, and uh, get to cash it out uh, however you want. Pete, parting thought for Super Bowl Fifty Two and our halftime show and commercial and game podcast. Uh, Tom Brady finally had his Gilgamesh moment. That's what I'll say. Where he, where he swam to the bottom of the water to try to pluck the plant that would give eternal life, and uh, he just couldn't hold his breath long enough, or he couldn't stay up all night long enough. He fell asleep, right? He he finally showed himself to be mortal, even though he's lost before. Uh, this kind of feels like this kind of feels like a high water mark has been has been passed. So, and uh, this is not right, like, like, uh, because that we've gotten biblical a couple times so far on the podcast, right? Like, with with uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermon and whatnot, you know, you want to say, Tom Brady, could you not stay awake with me several hours while, uh, in, in the Garden of, of Gethsemane? Uh, Mark, your parting shot on Super Bowl 52. Uh, I am amazed and astonished that Jack Ryan and Tom Clancy and uh, things are still a thing and are popular. <laughs> Uh, it is decidedly Cold War slash pre nine eleven in its main thrust, or at least in, in, in the main iteration that the author Tom Clancy wrote them. And uh, he's it's, it's long since gone. You know, he's long no longer of this earth, and the whole thing is just kind of a broader um, brand, I suppose, for a certain type of. Uh, uh, nationalistic, jingoistic, right-wing geopolitics, uh, which uh, that has a whole world of weirdness to it in and of itself. But uh, the old school Hunt for Red October, Patriot Games type of stuff with the Cold War and the terrorism and things like that, it's, it's so outdated. And I, I guess to the credit of people who own that intellectual property, they keep uh, trying to reinvent it. But the last time they did it, uh, the last two or three times they tried it, it hasn't been great. So shruggy emoji for Jack Ryan. I am, uh, and and for me, I am so glad that there is not a Baywatch esque R rated comedy reboot of Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> That's so, no, 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 it's so good. The, the the original movies are good. Go watch them. But uh, it's uh, they don't they don't like uh, again like let them let the dead stay dead. And maybe that's the lesson that we can take away from Super Bowl 52. All right. Thanks very much uh, for listening to this podcast. Thanks very much for Pete and Mark for staying up very late uh, on the East Coast and even later still because Skype uh, gave us some real problems tonight and uh, audio difficulties and stuff like that. We'll we'll have those uh, rectified by next week's Overthinking It podcast. Between now and then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. <laughs>